If you turn tonight, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 2 Corinthians 3, we'll pick up in verse 7. And I was thinking about a title for this. You know, there's those genes that you know, are, are named faded glory. Um, but the faded glory in this passage is probably the most extreme example of faded glory that I know of in the entire universe. Because it compares for us the glory that was the law. Because let's face it, who inscribed the tablets of stone? It was God, amen? So there was a glory to the law. The law was for a season glorious. As a matter of fact, it was the way that God instructed us and how we were to relate to him. And the first of those commands was, you should have no other God before me. That God alone is God. And so there was a glory of the law. And as Moses went and received those tablets, as he went to the mountain, as he spent time with God, as God did the work of inscribing on stone what we call the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, as God did that work, so powerful was that work that when Moses returned from the mountain, his face shone for a time with the glory of the Lord. Amen? The reason this is important is that is the reference point in this passage. Because the law was never intended to save anyone. The law was never intended to be our permanent way of relating to God. The law was a temporary solution to a permanent problem. That permanent problem is our hearts. That permanent problem is my sin and your sin. That sin has to be dealt with permanently, and the law could never do that. And so Moses, as a way of explanation, comes down from the mountain, glowing with the Shekinah glory of God, but the more time he spent with the world, the more the glory faded, until it finally faded away. Amen? That's all the law can ever do, and that's exactly why the Apostle Paul said of the law itself, as he wrote to the church at Galatia, the law was simply a tutor, a schoolmaster unto Christ, because without the glory of grace, no one sees God. Amen? If you join me, we'll pray, and we'll pick up in verse 7 here in 2 Corinthians 3. Father, thank you. Lord, thank you that we are no longer under the weight, the heavy burden of law-keeping. Lord, we're kept by your grace, through your mercy. Lord, you've given us faith to believe. And so, Father, as we listen to your word, as it speaks into our hearts, would you help us to see the necessity of your grace? Would you give us your glory, just a little glimpse of it tonight? Lord, help us to not have faded glory and grace, but growing glory, glory that grows glory to glory, as this passage states. And so God bless us as we study in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 7. But if the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, was glorious, which it was, amen? I mean, can you imagine? It was so glorious, in fact. Where were the Ten Commandments? stored once the children of Israel got to the tabernacle. They were stored inside of the Ark of the Covenant, amen? They were so precious that they were really assimilated into the worship of God as they stuck these three items inside of the Ark. And so there inside the Ark was the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, a pot of manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, all three works of the Holy Spirit. You have the law of God the Father, you have the bread of life, Jesus, and you have the work of the Spirit in the staff. Amen? And so these three pieces, the law was important. The law is still important in that sense. God's righteous commands on our lives have not changed. We, we still sit, in essence, under that weight, but that weight has been lifted because of the grace of God through Christ our Savior. But the law is still holy. God is still holy, and the law itself is still God's standard. The only difference now is how do we meet the righteous requirement of the law? 
Now it's through grace, but then it was still glorious. It was still wonderful. The mercy of God in that, in that sense, remember the cherubim faced one another. The cherubim were the judgment angels of God. They wielded a sword, and there's two of them, and they're facing each other. And there between them was the mercy seat. That's where the blood was spread. That's where the offering was made. And it was there on top of the mercy seat that the pillar of fire emanated. It was on top of the law of God. So the whole picture is a picture of the finished work of redemption, isn't it? You you see, as you think on this passage, it's important to put it into its context. It was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which the glory was passing away. And so because Moses did not want to see the glory pass away so that the people could see it, Moses wore a veil. How will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? Think about it. If there was a glory to the law, if there was a glory to to the face of Moses, if there was a glory to the way God dealt with the people in the Old Testament before the arrival of the cross of Christ and the grace of God, if there was glory then, how much more glory is there now that we can actually have a real relationship with God? Well, they knew about God. They knew how to appease God. They knew how to reach that place of atonement. But they did not have the spirit of the living God dwelling in them. And remember that we just finished. The law kills, but the spirit gives life. Amen? And so this whole picture is this new covenant bringing spiritual life instead of death. You see what the law did in its principal function was run around going, Guilty, 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 guilty. That was the primary function of the law. Because no one could keep it. Most people fail at the very first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Why is that? Because wherever you invest your time, your talent, and your treasure, wherever you worship, wherever you spend your time, talent, and treasure in worship... That's your God. So sometimes your God for the day is anger. Sometimes your God for the day is bitterness. Sometimes your God for the day is unforgiveness. Sometimes we worship at the altar of materialism. Sometimes some of us worship our metal gods that are parked out in the parking lot right now. Every once in a while we switch gods. And so in that moment, what the law does is this. Jeff, you're guilty of having another God. You want people to like you, and it's way over the top. You see, the law was glorious in that it pointed to God, but it was death when it pointed to me. When the law pointed at my life, I was dead. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife or... Thy neighbor's goods. How many of you have had trouble with that? Don't raise your hands. You walk into a car dealership, and not one of you goes out in the parking lot and go, can you show me the rotten strippy? You're in there, you're doing like I do. I go in, I look at the fully loaded one with the rims and the tires, the one that's fully decked out. I want a sweet ride, yeah? I'm not going, well, you know, could I just have the the cheap one? No, I, I, there are times when covetous creeps in. So what does the law do? Guilty. Oh, maybe it's not a lifestyle, but in that moment of thinking about something other than God having preeminence in your life, the law pronounces you guilty. Doesn't make the law bad. It makes my little heart wicked, doesn't it? That's the problem. The problem's me. The problem's not the law. The law is righteous. But the law simply pronounces me guilty. And if there was glory to that, if there was glory of the law in that sense, then there must be a greater glory that's coming through the grace of God. There must be. As Paul will write to the church at Galatia, 
the law can't justify a lost sinner. It never could. The law can't give a sinner righteousness. The law can't give you the Holy Spirit. The law cannot give you an inheritance. The law actually can't give you life. Do you know there's no place in the Old Testament that says that the law ever gave anyone life? It gave a whole lot of people death, amen? How many people died under the law? When you read the book, if you don't think this is true, read the book of Deuteronomy and then ask yourself for all of the penalties there, like if your ox gets out of the field and gores somebody, you get killed. Ask how much death was dealt out from the law. But not once does anywhere in the Old Testament it say that someone came to life by the law. It just simply said that they were guilty. But there was glory in that because it did show us exactly what kind of problem we really have. Amen? Verse 9. For the ministry of condemnation had glory. It did. You don't know that you need a healing unless you know that you got a problem. Amen? Most of you are not going to go into a cardiologist. Could you crack open my chest and give me a bypass? Why is that? Because you don't know if you need it, amen? You're not going to submit yourself to some kind of thing that's going to happen in your life that's going to be painful if you don't know that you're going to need that surgery. And so the tests are run so that you can know you have a cardiac issue so that the proper prescription can be pronounced for you. So you go through the testing. In other words, the law is brought out so that you can fully understand you've got a heart problem. Your blood pressure's off the charts. Your arteries are going, help me. They're so full of bacon grease. Too many double-doubles. For the ministry of condemnation had glory. In other words, there's a condemning act of the law. It says, look, you got an issue. But that has glory. Why? Because here's what's happening. Wow, I need to get this fixed. There's glory in understanding that you have a problem. But the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. In other words, it's good to know that you have a problem. How much better is it when you bump into the grace of God? Amen? Because the law says guilty. Jesus says, I can fix that. I can take care of the actual problem. Notice what it says, for even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect. When Moses brought the tablets down, the people almost worshipped the tablets of stone, amen? But they didn't actually have any glory in and of themselves. They were tablets of stone. Yes, God had inscribed on them. Why? Because of the glory that excels. You see, what was foreseen in that law was that man has a problem and God has a solution man has a problem God has a solution and so that righteousness that we now have by grace and through faith is actually known to us because we were previously condemned that's why the good news of Romans 8 is so good amen for there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus amen why is that so good because we were previously condemned. I was previously in great trouble with God. Matter of fact, the book of Ephesians in chapter 2 says I was actually dead in my trespasses and sins. But the good news of righteousness is he has made us alive. Amen? This, this passage points us away from the faded glory and towards the righteousness instead of the condemnation that we would have without the grace of God. The ministry of the new covenant actually produces that righteousness. It changes your life forever. It takes you out of the condemnation and puts you righteous before a holy God. 
And I don't know if you've ever thought about the word justification, but it's more than making you just as if you'd never sinned. It's the price has been completely paid. The debt is erased. It's eliminated. You're still actually guilty. Your case was presented before the Lord of heaven, and he says, you're guilty, and Jesus steps up and says, I'll pay the whole price. How glorious is that? You see, sometimes people think that when you come to faith in Christ that somehow you're no longer guilty. No, you're still guilty, but you've had your sentence commuted. It was paid by somebody else. Jesus paid the judicial price of your sin. You still have the guilty part of the verdict. You were pronounced guilty and will forever be guilty. But that penalty will never be extracted from you because of what Christ did on the cross. That's why he has made us alive. Not that you are alive. You're going to be made alive in Christ Jesus. You're not saving yourself. He is saving you. When the law loses its glory... The reason it lost its glory is because faith came in. Amen? Now the law is like sitting over there, you know, it's like, well, what do we do? Well, we can still produce, the law might speak to itself, guilt and condemnation and a bond of indebtedness and, you know, disciplines us and, oh, by the way, it's a yoke that's too heavy to bear. That's what the law can do. And that's still actually quite useful. You know, one of the things that happens when you run into the law, let's say that, you know, you have a little trouble driving down one of our local freeways and you exceed the speed limit and behind you comes the California Highway Patrol officer and the light goes on, light bar comes on and the loudspeaker says, pull over please, and you get to the side. One of the things that happens to you is you get a notice to appear, amen? It's called a summons. That summons you to a court of law, and there in the court of law, the judge has you come up, and uh, how do you plead? And if you're going to plead guilty, you plead guilty. If you're going to contest it, you have an attorney there. Uh, And here's what happens. Unless somehow you're set free from that particular penalty, you're going to pay a fine. Amen? The law announces that a fine is due. And so the law comes along and says, Mr. Gill, that's going to be $485 for doing five miles an hour over the speed limit. And you're like, what? Well, you could have read the law and slowed down, but you chose not to. And so the penalty for breaking the law is the fine. And so what happens the next time you look at the sign, you go, "Mm -mm, no, I'm going in the slow lane. You have a change of attitude. You see, the law is still glorious. It can still produce a very good work in us in that we, in in a future sense, say, no, 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 I've already learned my lesson there. I'm not doing that anymore. But the better news is, in Christ Jesus, you're never going to court again. Because he has forgiven your sins past, present, and oh, by the way, the future ones. By his grace through faith. Oh, you'll still commit them and you will still be guilty, but they will be paid by his grace. That's why the glory of the new covenant is so amazing. Otherwise, here's the other the only other way this could happen you'd have to get saved every time you sin. We just come in and do nothing but altar calls every single service, amen? Because all y'all would have some problems. You'd have some issues. You'd come in for the harsh words you spoke to your spouse. You'd come in for the way that you treated your employee at work. You'd come in for the way you drove. You'd come in for the way that you lusted after someone or something. You would come in for the greed that's in your heart. You'd be getting saved like 7,000 times a day. Every time you took a breath, like, "Ah." okay, I repent again. Praise God, the grace is permanent. Amen? Amen? I don't know about you. That's the glory of the new covenant. Only God's grace can set us free. 
though we are still guilty, we're free from the guilt. We're free from the stains in our lives. A third thing that we see here. I think the glory is, is internal and not external. Verse 11. For what if, for if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. What, well, what is remaining in your life? Well, what remains in your life now is the work of the Holy Spirit. When you got saved, you were indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so literally God is now in you. You see, Paul wrote at a time when two dispensations were overlapping. You had the dispensation or the time or the economy of God's law, and then you had the dispensation or the time, the economy of God's grace, and they overlapped for a period of time. There were people who were alive still trying to live by the law. At the same time, people who were born again by grace through faith, were, they were in the same space at the same time. And as the new covenant of grace came in, remember what happened to the church? They had a whole series of events, and Paul writes to those people in the book of Galatians. We, we call them Judaizers, people who are still trying to live by the law and live in grace at the same time. And man, were they confused. Because they're running around trying to keep the law as a means of showing that they have God's grace. And so if the law was glorious, how much more glorious is the grace of God? You see, here's a little fact that you might want to think on if you actually want to look at it in its totality if you go back to the jewish system of the law law keeping feasts and all of those things if you remember the jewish people were taken into captivity in 686 bc they headed off to babylon they would eventually come back under ezra and nehemiah and rebuild the wall and they rebuilt the temple And the temple that they rebuilt at that time was so bad that the people whined about the former glory. It was like this pile of rocks. And then they started building the temple up. And then comes Herod, this Idumean king, who builds this glorious temple. Gilds it with gold, covers it with limestone, shines in the sun, enlarges the portico, makes this whole beautiful thing. But you know what never came back from Babylon? The Ark of the Covenant. The temple implements. That temple that was beautiful on the outside had no God on the inside. Oh, they went through all the motions. They actually even made sacrifices. But when the priest went in behind the veil... The real Ark of the Covenant was still in Babylon somewhere. We don't even know where it is to this day. But if you skip past that, and let's say that somehow it mysteriously appeared, even though we don't believe it did. In AD 70, what happened to that temple? Emperor Titus, Flavius Titus, destroys Jerusalem, burns it to the ground, pushes the temple off the temple mount, and Jesus, remarking of that event right before he was crucified, he descends into the valley as he comes over the mount as he's descending down the mount of olives as he looks at the temple he said there's going to come a day after he says jerusalem oh jerusalem you who kill your prophets there will come a day when there will not be one stone left on top of that mountain on top one on top of another guess what exists today three mosques and no temple why is that important Because the glory of the law died a long time ago. There's been no atonement. There have been no sacrifices. So for at least since AD 70, nobody's even been able to go into the courtyard to offer up a sacrifice. There's been no way even for the system of the law to actually be utilized. And so it was all spiritualized. Well, we'll just pretend it happened. 
There's no place in the Old Testament that says you can pretend to offer an offering of sacrifice or that you can pretend to spill blood. In fact, the book of Leviticus plainly declares without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So guess what's been happening for the last nearly 2,000 years for the Jewish people? No glory of the law because there's been no shedding of the blood. There's been no atonement. There's been no remission. But for those of us in Christ Jesus, the glory of the new covenant has been shining in our hearts. Amen? We have been redeemed by the blood that was shed for us at the cross. Amen? That's the comparison. The temple was just an empty monument. Its glory was decreasing. And so you have these things that you can look at. Verse 12, Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses. Moses was not bold of speech, amen? Why do we know that? Because the Bible tells us so. Moses stuttered. And in fact, it was so bad that when he was going to be sent to Pharaoh, he basically said, are you kidding me? Who am I to go to Pharaoh? And so God has to actually coax, coax him into going. Well, when you get there, just tell him that I am that I am sent you. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. In other words, Moses didn't want to let the children of Israel see the glory of God fail because he knew it was going to fade. He knew that faded glory was coming. Moses had been communing with God. And he certainly was in the glory of God in that sense. But it wasn't permanent. It was decreasing. Every day that went by, the glory of God decreased on Moses' face until it was no more. That's not the same with us, is it? The glory that's in you is actually increasing day by day. The glory in you is actually growing day by day. You see, there was an application of this that, that extended to national Israel, to the Jewish people, but their minds were blinded. Verse 14, for until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament. Because the veil is taken away in Christ. The veil is not taken away because the high priest, once a year on the Day of Atonement, gets to go into the Holy of Holies after he offers a sacrifice first for himself, his own family, and then for the children of Israel. Then he could go in on that one day on Yom Kippur. He could go in and make an offering. That can't happen anymore for a whole bunch of reasons, chief of which is there's no temple and there is no veil. But even when he could, that was a temporary solution. It lasted a few nanoseconds. The moment he turned around and left the glory of the Lord, someone in the children of Israel had already sinned, amen? And so that debt began to compound. That putting away, that atonement, that kafar, that covering was good for however long it took him to turn around and walk away. And the high priest actually didn't turn from the altar, didn't walk away with his back towards the, the Ark of the Covenant, He backed away from it slowly in honor. He opened the veil behind him and he walked out so that he actually got to see the the glory of God as long as he could. But in the Old Testament, that veil was there every single day. Amen? That veil was always there. The glory was inside And the people were outside. Because the veil is taken away in Christ, what happened when Jesus died? What happened when he said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit, and he yielded up his spirit to the Father? What happened? 
the veil tore from the top to the bottom. The Apostle Paul's referencing that event. He said, the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day when Moses is read, the veil lies on their heart. You see, it was really never about the veil in the temple. It was always about the veil that's over our heart. And the only way to deal with the veil that's over our heart, the only way to have ever-increasing glory in our lives is to surrender our heart to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It's never been about religion. It's never been actually about the law. The law could point you the right direction. It's always been about you personally. How are you doing with God? And without Christ, the answer is not very well. The wrath of God abides on those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that veil over the children of Israel blinded them. And nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Then what happened through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, his sacrifice, through what happened at Calvary, that veil disappears. It's now gone. If you don't have Christ, the veil remains. If you have Christ, the veil's not just torn. It doesn't exist anymore. You have now free access to God the Father through Christ the Son. Amen? You can walk in. You can call him Abba, Father. You can say, Dad. Not to disrespect the holy God, but that's how free your access is to God. Because the veil has not just been rent. It's been removed. It was torn at the cross. But in essence, to those who believe, it was taken down. That veil's never going back up. God's not going to wake up one morning and say, you know, I'm just kind of sick of these people. And the veil's going back up. I'm going to put it back up because, you know, they're just obnoxious. Now, God would have every right to say that, amen? Maybe not about you. He does about me. So I would be the reason he rehung the veil. But the bottom line is he's never going to do that because the death of Christ on the cross was sufficient to take care of all of our sin. You're not going to have to worry about it coming back to haunt you. You're not going to get to heaven and go, man, I am so sorry, Jeff, but there's 16 things left on the list and they're not covered. You ever, you ever gone to a sale and you don't read the fine print and it doesn't cover everything that ends with 0. .05? You know what I'm saying? And it's always everything you want that ends in point zero five. That's the way it is if grace is not sufficient for all of our sin. Because you're going to have something on your list that is not on the sale. If grace is not sufficient to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, which is what your Bible says, then one day you might get to go, well, except for that. I'm really sorry, but you should have read the fine print. But it's not going to happen because you have ever-increasing glory. When you came to faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit came to reside within you. Your sins were forgiven. Your debt was paid. Your name was inscribed in the Lamb's book of life. You now have grace with God the Father. The war is ended. The enmity and strife are over. All those things ended. Glory began that day. But here's what's going to happen. One day you're going to step out of time and into eternity. And you're going to say, Glory! Amen? And it's going to be a lot greater than the glory you understand right now. You're going to have the fullness of joy. You're going to be completely sinless. You're going to have, praise God, a new body. Amen? I'm looking forward to that day. I've abused this particular one. So there is increasing glory in so many different senses. Spiritually, you will never, ever, ever sin. Anybody excited about that? Hallelujah. Physiologically, you will have a body suited for heaven. Anybody excited about that? Amen. You see what I'm saying? Increasing glory. There's some things that are glorious that we have not yet experienced. So our glory in that sense is going to increase until the day that we go home to be with Jesus. And then it's going to be the fullness of his glory. Your Bible says that when we see him, we shall be like he is. That's crazy. Not God ourselves, but like him in a heavenly sense. 
So nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And now the Lord is spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is, say it with me, liberty. Praise the Lord. Now let me tell you about that liberty. It is not liberty to sin. It is freedom from sin. It is not liberty to live your life as you please. It is liberty to live your life as he pleases for you. It is you are set free from the bondage of sin and death so that the life that you now live, you live for him. In fact, so much so that your life is hidden in him. For us who really love the Lord, for those of us who want to be most pleasing to God, our lives should look a whole lot like Jesus. That's liberty. That's why Paul could say, I count not my own life dear. That's what he meant. He says, look, this thing? Are you kidding me? One day, this tent, unless the Lord comes and raptures his church first, this tent is going to be like everyone else's tent. It's going to turn back to the dust from which it was made. But the glory that I have inside me by the work of the Holy Spirit, because notice what it says, where the Spirit of the Lord is. Where's the Spirit of the Lord right now? Inside of every single person who names the name of Christ. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. There's liberty. You've been set free from sin itself and the penalty of it. What's the penalty for sin? Death. Anybody excited about that? No, I don't know. Maybe you guys had a bad week or something. But I'm pretty excited about the grace of God. Because I know what's going to happen. Because I have a death penalty that was pronounced on me that Jesus Christ paid. So I'm no longer under that death sentence. I have been set free from that. Even though I was guilty and remain guilty in the sense that I did that. It's my responsibility. And I will even sin after getting saved. I'm still going to heaven. And the price for my sin is still paid. And yes, I need to repent. So where the spirit of the Lord is, I now have liberty because I'm no longer under sin's bondage or its penalty, death. You might say, well, why was that spiritual veil actually there? It's actually pretty simple. Because they wanted to be blind. They wanted to go back to the law. They thought the law, they thought religion could save them. And there's a whole lot of people in our world that still feel that way. They think that you're saved by works, doing good things for God. That's why the Apostle Paul, as he writes to the church at Rome, says, by the works of the flesh is no one justified. You can't get there. There is no route from works to heaven. Did you know that? There is no route from works to heaven. That train doesn't go there. You get on the works train, it's going to stop short of heaven. You know, when you travel in Europe, they have a couple of different train systems, and, and one of the things that you can use are what are called through trains. Th- those through trains begin in a major city, and they go to another major city. If you get on a local train, it stops at every single train station. I, it stops if there's a cow near the tracks. It stops just to make sure the cow doesn't want to get on. You need the through train of grace to get to heaven. Works is a local train. It stops everywhere. You want to be in that place where you have increasing glory through the grace of God working in your life. National Israel only got on the works train. There's a personal application for us. Notice verse 18, but we all with unveiled face. See, you don't need to veil your face for the glory that God's placed in you through the work of the Holy Spirit. Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being present tense active metamorphe, transformed. We're, we're being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. You see, the personal application of this, you've actually met the glory of the Lord in your salvation in Christ Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is now actually in you. 
The Holy Spirit is guiding you, leading you, convicting you of sin and righteousness, convincing you of your salvation and your security in Christ, your assurance of salvation. You have all these incredible things going on for you. You see, the climax of this chapter is to look at this and go, this is no fading glory. I don't need to veil the glory of Christ. It's never going to fail. I'm not going to wake up and, wow, I lost the glory of the Lord. You know, it finally wore off. If it's a religious experience because you did something for God, then you're going to need a veil. If it's salvation by grace and through faith, you're never going to need a veil because the glory is never going to fade. You are going to, in that sense, be transformed, changed from glory to greater glory. Far exceeding glory is really the emphasis here. We undergo, in that sense, a metamorphosis, changed. It's interesting to me that the same word changed, transformed, or transfigured, used for the transfiguration of Jesus himself. When he was translated to heaven, that was a metamorphosis as well. Why is that? Because he went from earth back to heaven. He went back home. You see, he put off his glory when he was here. If Jesus had come with all the royal pomp and circumstance, the same thing that Moses got a glimpse of while he was in the cleft of a rock on the top of the mountain, if Jesus had come with that same glory when he came down the Mount of Olives and descended to the temple in Jerusalem, as he went past the Garden of Gethsemane, everyone who saw him would have died. Because no one can look on God and live. And so Jesus put off his glory. He kept that in heaven while coming to earth fully as God. He's now got that glory back. And one day he's coming back here with the glory. And if you're here tonight and you believe that Christ Jesus is Lord, you're coming with him. You talk about glory. I don't know if you've ever thought about the second coming of the Lord. I'm not real fond of horseback riding, but that horseback riding I want to do. Amen? The word metamorphosis, which we use all the time, it generally, at least in a biologic way, is normally uh, revolves around what we would call a chrysalis of a butterfly. And it goes through stages. First, that, that egg is laid. The DNA from the original butterfly is contained within that. But internally, there is another DNA that is about to be recomb- recombinated. And so what's going to eventually happen is, is that that DNA is going to produce a new butterfly. But it's going to go through a few stages. It's going to be a larva. And then it's going to be a pupa. It might actually be a caterpillar first. But it takes a couple of steps before it's finally fully glorified into a butterfly. Amen? Same thing is true with you. Same thing is true with me. I am being sanctified. I am being transformed. It's present tense active. In other words, it's an ongoing process. And so when you think about what's going on here, We are being transformed from glory to glory, metamorphosed into a greater glory. In essence, an internal change that will produce something external in you. Not an external thing like the law, but an internal thing that one day is going to turn you into a butterfly for Jesus. Amen? You're going to pop new wings. I don't know if we have wings in heaven. Don't ask me. I won't tell you. Me, I don't, I don't know. I think I'm just going to be able to kind of do, you know, like transport myself from place to place. I, I don't know. But I know this. When we get there, we're going to be like him. When he was fully glorified, he had to leave this earth. But one day he's coming back. And when he comes back, we're going to be as he is. You see, what actually happens is after you have that grace awakening, 
the old dead legalism of the law is gone. The, the, the abuse that we took under the law, in essence, is finished. That, that's why when, when you look in the mirror of the law, because the, the law could never actually change you. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but when you go into the bathroom in the morning to you know, put your face on or do whatever you're going to do, the mirror can only tell you how hideous you look, right? It's like, oh, my, go back to bed, right? Am I right? It, no matter how long you stare in the mirror, can the mirror actually fix your facial condition? No. You have to be transformed by the putting on of your mascara. Not you guys. But what happens is when you look in the mirror, the mirror can reflect back exactly how bad the condition is. That's all the law could do. When you looked at the law, you just go, wow, that's pathetic. That is really terrible. But you had to go someplace else to actually have the problem fixed. Praise God, there was a permanent fix that was applied at the cross. And all you have to do is receive it and believe it. Amen? You see that metamorphosis that you underwent freed you from legalism. It freed you from the law. It changed you internally. So when you came out of that metamorphosis as a new creation in Christ Jesus, and behold, all things are passing away. Again, present tense active. You're in that state of one day reaching your full glory. You're becoming more like Jesus every day. You've been set free from all of that binding law. The law that you used to look at and go, man, I'm pathetic. God's grace has fixed that for us. Now when we look in the mirror, who do we see? We see the reflection of Jesus, amen? We're not looking at the law anymore. We're looking at Jesus. When we see ourselves, we see what he has done in us. When we see others, we see what God is doing in them. We now reflect Christ. The glory that we have is already his glory. I don't have my glory. Any glory that's in this body is Jesus. And one day I'm going to have the fullness of what the Lord wants to do with me. That greater glory. And I won't get there by keeping the law. It's, it's not because I become more sinless as I get older. It's because of what Christ did for me on the cross that I have any capacity whatsoever to even resist sin. But what happens is as I get older, I become more like my Savior. I get a little more glorified, if you will. And we have to learn to live like we're being glorified. And we have to learn to live like one day we're going to get the final treatment, if you will. We're already sufficient to get there, but one day you're going to get, you know, it's like in Wizard of Oz. You're going to be there getting, you know, the tin man getting buffed. I don't know what it's going to be like when we get to heaven. I know this, I'm going to be perfected completely when I get there. Can't wait. A lot of people in this life spend all their time trying to focus on the externals. The externals aren't actually going to do what needs to be done. It all happens inside. Legalists exalt standards and, yeah, denounce sin. And we should have standards and we should denounce sin. But if you're not magnifying the Lord Jesus Christ, you've missed the actual solution to the problem if it's not about his grace working itself out in our lives then we're still under the law we're still looking into the mirror and we're still seeing the wrong thing what i know about my own life is because as we'll see when we get to chapter four when i see the mercy of god my heart becomes faint. I just reach that place. It's like, Lord, you've been so good. Thank you for saving me by your grace and through faith. 
Thank you that you met the requirement of the law that I couldn't meet. Thank you that you paid the penalty I couldn't pay. Thank you that you love me more than I love myself. And that's hard to imagine, isn't it? You ever thought about that? God loves you more than you love you? Because you really boil down to, you get in a quiet place someplace, you think about how much you love yourself. You love yourself. Oh, yeah, you do. You love yourself a lot, in fact. But God loves you more. And he's going to love you to the uttermost. He's going to love you to the end. He's going to love you all the way into glory. And when you get there, you're going to have ever-increasing glory. Amen? Would you stand and we'll pray. You can have a few of the pastors and some of the ladies come forward if you need prayer tonight. Don't let the glory fade that your works grow in glory which is in him. Amen. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for saving us by grace and through faith. Thank you that the ministry of death that was engraved on stones though it was glorious in its time is so far surpassed by the glory of your grace in our lives we thank you for salvation that's come to us by grace and through faith lord as we have professed you jesus as savior as we've asked you to forgive lord you have forgiven and you have cleansed us from all unrighteousness we confess Your word says that you have done these things. And so, Lord, we thank you for the freedom from the bondage of looking in that mirror and knowing that we're guilty and having no way to fix it. Jesus, thank you that you tore the veil. And because you tore the veil, we don't need a veil. We can call you Abba, Father. We have free access. The veil is torn. The door is open. Your phone line's always on. You're you're, computers never switched off you take our emails and our text 24 hours a day seven days a week you're listening for the voice of your children and so father we bless you help us to grow in grace and grow in glory and we ask all of this in jesus name amen